Our readings for today come from two separate texts. The first is Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 9, and the second is 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Now, back in the day, there was this thing called cable television. And when you were a teenager, uh, you would sometimes find yourself home after school with nothing to do, and and you'd flip between the channels until something caught your eye, causing you to stop. Now, back in these days, too, there were uh, two uh, major music channels. There was MTV, which stood for music television, and there was the poor man's MTV, VH1, which stood for, if you actually know what that stood for, um, I commend you. You are, are much wiser than I am before I went to watch, uh, before I looked it up on Wikipedia yesterday. Video hits one. Yes, video hits one and MTV. And over the years, they got away from just showing music videos to developing their own original programming. And one of the great shows that was developed by VH1 that caused me to stop channel surfing almost invariably was a show called Behind the Music. Now, Behind the Music was an hour-long show where, where, where they, they cataloged the rise and the inevitable fall and, and then the uh, erstwhile comeback uh, of some of the great bands of the 1980s and early 1990s. There was 
Motley Crue, who, who ruled the hair metal era, only to be sucked under by the lure of drugs. And then there was MC Hammer, who rapped and danced and parachute pantsed his way into our hearts before blowing his vast millions on houses and cars. Behind the music, it appealed to that innate desire we all have to know the answer to that question. I wonder whatever happened to them. And it was the same formula every single week, all within an hour. Now, in our sermon series, we're kind of taking a, a, a turn. You know, this winter we were with Mark and we're entering and we entered in the last couple of weeks into the early chapters of Acts. But here we're fast forwarding way into Acts chapter 17 and we're, and we're going behind the music as it were. And we're looking at passages from the book of Acts and Paul's letter in conversation. Because how many of us, if we were reading 1 Thessalonians, which most scholars believe was Paul's first letter, written around the year 49 AD. How many of us would picked up, have picked up on the fact that, that there was a connection between 1 Thessalonians and Acts 17, where in 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says that they had received the word with much affliction. And so if we're just reading through our New Testament, it's easy to kind of pass over that and gloss over and not make the connection that when Paul says, and not realize that when Paul says that they received it with much affliction, is that he means that basically his preaching caused a riot to break out. And what's clear at the end of our Acts reading is, is that the settlement that's reached between Jason and the city officials is that he pays a fine and Paul and Silas are not legally allowed to enter that city again. Now, much affliction is one thing to call it. And so I want us to read these passages in, in, in conversation with each other and, and see where the sparks fly off of them and, and see we can, how we can understand just how revolutionary Paul's message was. We live in a culture that's so steeped in, in Christian stories and values and, and assumptions that, that it's hard for us to understand that, to comprehend that. It's hard for us to understand why, uh, to steal the words from an old Anglican bishop, why it was that everywhere Paul went, there was a riot. But everywhere the old bishop went, they served tea. I want us to look at three things this morning. Paul's message <laughs> and just how radical it was in its cultural context. And then I want to look at, at, at the Thessalonians, how they received that message, what impact it made in their life. And then also, lastly, I want us to look at the accusations that were made against Paul and the earliest Christians. So Paul's message, the, the Thessalonians' response and the haters' accusations. So first, Paul's message. Now, l last week we were with Peter and John, and they were in the temple precincts in Jerusalem, and, and they healed a man. But Jesus had said all the way back in Acts chapter 1, which Matt, Matt preached on um, um, a few weeks ago, Jesus had said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so here we are having the gospel break beyond the confines of Jerusalem and beyond Israel proper. And, and, and here is witness being born to Jesus to the ends of the earth. Now Thessalonica was and, and is still a city situated on the north, uh, in northeastern Greece on the Aegean Sea. It, it, it was and continues to be a rich and prosperous city. I mean, it was 2,000 years ago. It is today. It has its own Ikea. So you know it's a city of some means and value. But it was a rich, a prosperous, an important city for trade and for commerce and for culture. And it had a large enough Jewish population that it had a synagogue 
And so just before stopping there, Paul and Silas had been in another Greek town called Philippi, where their preaching had got them thrown in jail, and they were only released from it and escorted out of town with a police escort after a miraculous non-jailbreak in which they were singing songs and and praying in prison when an earthquake loosed their chains. And miraculously, they did not run away, sparing the life of the Philippian jailer, winning him to the faith and ensuring a peaceful escort out of town. So they're kicked out of Philippi, and then they make the hundred-mile journey to Thessalonica, where Paul followed his usual practice of entering the synagogue, preaching and teaching about Jesus from the Old Testament, and then starting a, a church community for those who were won over by his message. And what's fascinating about the account in Acts is that we do just a small sample of what his preaching was. You know, earlier in Acts chapter 13, there's this expanded section where Paul is a longer version. Luke gives us of what Paul's preaching was. But here we get just the Cliff Notes version. And so that's important for us to understand what was really at the heart and the core of Paul's preaching and what made it so revolutionary. So here's what Paul preached according to Acts. He reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. All right, so here's what we see at the heart of Paul's preaching. Jesus, the suffering and risen one, is the Messiah. Now we hear that and we think, okay, no big deal. That's what I've been hearing in church my whole life, or that's something that I assume Christians have been talking about for forever. But what we're missing is exactly how scandalous this would have been to both Jews and Greeks. Because when Paul says that Jesus suffered, it's not just that that he was killed. It's how he was killed that was a problem. Jesus died by being nailed to a Roman cross. Now the cross for us, it's the universal symbol of the Christian faith. But it actually wasn't for the earliest Christians. In fact, it took many centuries before the cross even began to appear in Christian art. And that's not because the cross was not at the heart of the Christian faith. Far from it. The earliest Christians understood exactly how important the cross was. But the reason that they didn't depict it in their art and iconography was because they had firsthand experience with it. As a horrific instrument of torture and execution. Now, recently I've been reading a, a book called Dominion by the British historian Tom Holland. And in this book, Holland seeks to trace how Christianity has shaped almost everything we take for granted in Western culture. And for Holland, that this happened is remarkable given the fact of how Christianity began. It began with Jesus of Nazareth hanging on a cross beside the highway into Jerusalem. And I've never heard someone describe just how crazy this would be in Roman culture, Greco-Roman culture in this way. And so I want to read you a quote. It's a long quote, but, but, but he, he places the cross in its cultural context in a way that just blew me away. Here's how he describes it from the Roman perspective. No death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, long in agony, with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds, such a fate Roman intellectuals agreed was the worst imaginable. This was what rendered it so suitable a punishment for slaves. Lacking such a sanction, the entire social order might fall apart. 
luxury and splendor such as Rome could boast were dependent in the final reckoning on, those, on keeping those who sustained it in their place. The, the Roman historian Tacitus said this, after all, we have slaves drawn from every corner of the world in our households, practicing strange customs and foreign cults or none. And it is only by means of terror that we can hope to coerce such scum. Nevertheless, while the salutary effect of crucifixion on those who might otherwise threaten the order of the state was taken for granted, Roman attitudes to the punishment were shot through with an ambivalence. Naturally, if it were to have a deterrent effect, it needed to be public. Nothing spoke more eloquently of a failed revolt than the sight of hundreds upon hundreds of corpse-strung crosses, whether lining a highway or else massed before a rebellious city, the hills around it stripped bare of their trees. Yet in the exposure of the crucified to the public gaze, there lurked a paradox. So foul was the carrion reek of their disgrace that many felt tainted even by viewing a crucifixion. The Romans, for all that they had adopted the punishment as the supreme penalty, refused to countenance the possibility that it might have originated with them. Only a people famed for their barbarousness and cruelty could have ever devised such a torture. So it must have come from the Persians, perhaps, or the Assyrians or the Gauls. Everything about the practice of nailing a man to a cross was repellent. It was this disgust that crucifixion uniquely inspired, which explained why when slaves were condemned to death, they were executed in the meanest, wretchedest stretch of land beyond the city walls. It's also why, despite the ubiquity of crucifixion across the Roman world, few cared to think much about it. Order, the order loved by the gods and upheld by the magistrates, vested with the full authority of the greatest power on earth, was what counted, not the elimination of such vermin as presumed to challenge it. Criminals broken on implements of torture, who were such filth to concern men of breeding and civility? Some deaths were so vile, so squalid, that it was best to draw a veil across them entirely. And that a man who himself had been crucified might be hailed as a god, could not help be seen by people everywhere across the Roman world as scandalous, as obscene, as grotesque. The ultimate offensiveness, though, was to one particular people, Jesus' own. The Jews, unlike their rulers, did not believe that a man might become a god. They believed that there was only one almighty, eternal deity, creator of the heavens and the earth. He was worshipped by them as the Most High God, Lord of hosts, the master of all the earth. Empires were to his order, mountains to melt like wax. That such a God of all gods might have had a son, and that this son, suffering the fate of a slave, might have been tortured to death on a cross, were claims as stupefying as they were to most Jews repellent. No more shocking, a reversal of their most devoutly held assumptions could possibly have been imagined. Not merely blasphemy, it was madness. This was the message that Paul and Silas and Peter and all the other apostles brought with them everywhere across the Roman world. That Jesus of Nazareth, who, who had died the detestable, horrible death of a rebellious slave, was both Lord and Christ. To, to counter the, the utter confusion or, or the abject horror that this would have caused, Paul had to sit down and explain how this could be from Israel's own scriptures. That this is how God always had worked, how God had chosen for himself a people who were slaves themselves, 
to receive the divine law. How God had chosen a a runt, a nobody, a shepherd boy to be his anointed king. How even when the empires of the world had crushed God's people because of their unfaithfulness, he had promised that, that, that he would bring them back and restore them and vindicate them. How God had shown Ezekiel that a valley filled with dried bones could indeed live. And how Isaiah had spoken of a servant of the Lord who would suffer greatly. And by that very suffering, he he would bring healing to the nations and forgiveness of sins. God had always worked through the nobodies, the rejects, the ridiculed, the losers, the weirdos, the poor, and the powerless. It was all right there in the Bible itself. And the ultimate proof that Jesus was who Paul said he was, was that God had raised him from the dead and now he had ascended to rule at God's right hand. And so now when, when Paul and the other apostles entered into a new city and preached Jesus, that they saw that something strange happened. Instead of people just being repulsed or offended by this message, something else happened. God's spirit was at work and and, and people were not repulsed by this message. They were strangely drawn to it. They responded with faith. When they heard the stories about Jesus, his healings, his exorcisms, his parables, his beatitudes, his wisdom, his self-sacrificial death and his resurrection, people were hearing something they knew to be true. So that was Paul's message, which he said was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews. That Jesus, who died the worst and most shameful death imaginable, was actually the Messiah. He was Israel's and indeed the entire world's true king. And it was through him that the God of the universe had worked, was working, is working, will work to set the world right and make all things new. I hope you can, can understand from this that, that, that Christianity, from its beginning, it, it, was, it was weird. It was strange. God chose the foolish things of this world to, to, to shame the wise. And so when I say, when, when one of our church mantras is this, keep Christianity weird, we are only doing what has been done from the beginning. Because Jesus was weird, and that's one of the things that makes him so wonderful. Now I want us to look at the Thessalonian response. And so for that, we can turn to Paul's letter. Uh, There he says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And so the Thessalonian believers received the gospel not only with with the word, but also in power. And so what this means is, is that they didn't just receive the message of Jesus as some new information but it provided them with a new way of living, of being, of seeing the world. What marked that new way of living was turning from their idols to the true and living God. Now, now Thessalonica, it was a city that was filled with idols. For, For every profession, for every life situation, there was a God in the pantheon. There was an offer of solace and a source of salvation. 
The gods of the ancient world, they were numerous, they were powerful, they were capricious, they were difficult to placate and easy to offend. And what turning from idols meant was that the Thessalonians, they were freed from fear. They were freed from superstition. They were freed from the sense that they were under control. And so how do you know that you've become a Christian? The same way the Thessalonians did. You know that, that when the gospel becomes not just a message you believe, but, but a power in your life. And when the gospel is a power in your life, it changes everything. How, how, how you think, how you treat people, how, how you think about forgiveness and your relationships and your doubts and your fears and what you do with your resources and your time and your talents. When the gospel comes, it, it frees you from being under control but it also frees you from this need to be in control. When the gospel becomes a word and power in your life, it it looks like what Paul talks about in in 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, where he says uh, to the Thessalonians, you know, we've heard about your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, which sounds a lot like what Paul writes about later in, in 1 Corinthians 13, which we've all heard at weddings. His great poem and pan to God's love. Where he says, these three things abide. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. So we've seen Paul's message. The strange announcement that an obscure Galilean rabbi who died the death of a rebellious slave and whom God raised again to new life was both the Jewish Messiah and the world's Lord. And we've seen the Thessalonian response that this message came to them as a word of power. It changed not just their ideas, but their entire orientation of life. So much so that Paul says that it's resounded through the world. Paul hasn't even had to brag about it. People have come to know them by their reputation. And when he says it's resounded throughout the world, that word there is like a, a trumpet call resounding. It's echoed and filled the world because of the difference that it's made. But lastly, I I, want to shift our focus back to Acts 17 and to see what those who did not believe this strange gospel, and it did not become a word and a power in their lives, what did they have to say about Paul and his gospel? Now, some of the Jewish leaders in the city were were not happy to see Paul attracting converts, and so they roused a mob, and, and they dragged some guy named Jason before the local magistrate, saying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Here's what's striking about their accusations. Uh, on the face of it, on the surface, they have absolutely nothing, it seems, to do with theology. They, they don't drag them before the magistrates and go, these men are telling people uh, that they can go to heaven when they die. Or, or they're saying that if people pray a prayer and Jesus comes into their heart, their sins are forgiven. If they had brought those charges against Jason, Paul, Silas, the earliest Christians, the magistrates would have said, who cares? And what's so fascinating about these accusations is that they are all political in nature. Because they're saying that the Christians are seditious. They're revolutionaries. Becoming a Christian is a revolutionary act because it means pledging one's loyalty to a new king and being a threat to the social order, turning the world upside down. And so the last question I really want us to think about this morning is this. 
Were those charges true? Are those charges true? Is Christianity a revolutionary society upending faith? Now, on the one hand, no, it isn't. There's no evidence whatsoever anywhere of the earliest Christians engaging in or advocating an armed uh, insurrection against Roman rule. There is a strong pacifistic bent to a faith whose founder says, do not resist an evil person. And if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn and offer them the other cheek also. In the words of one commentator, the kingship of Jesus is unlike that of the rulers of this world. He conquers with ambassadors, not armies. He, he, he brings men peace by upsetting the peace and turning things upside down. His weapons are truth and love. He conquers through his cross where he died for a world of lost sinners. He even died for his enemies. So on the one hand, the accusations of the Jewish leaders and of the mobs are patently false. Christians don't represent a clear and present danger. They aren't terrorists or Bolsheviks or, or, or Jacobins who are, you know, going to destroy the ancient order and build a new one upon its ruins out of its rubble. But ironically, these charges are also true. Christians do indeed have loyalty to a king who is not Caesar and is unlike Caesar, a king who, who could not be more of an antithesis to Caesar. Jesus is Lord, said the earliest Christians, which meant that Caesar was not. And Christians then and, and now have to obey Jesus above any other earthly authority. That's why authoritarian regimes have always thought to either suppress or, or control Christianity. Now, as for turning the world upside down, well, ironically, that charge also was true. Tom Holland, the aforementioned and block quoted uh, historian, said that what actually drew him to study the influence of Christianity uh, on, on the world today was his study of ancient Rome. And he had grown up in, in, in the Church of England and he had heard all the Bible studies, but he said, you know, actually the Israelites, I was not interested in them at all. They were boring to me. The real game in town were the ancient powers that controlled them. You know, the, the, the ancient Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. That was where the real action was. And, and so he found that in studying these cu cultures, though, actually the more fascinated he became by them, uh, the more he was repulsed by them at the same time. You know, he, he would read that, that Caesar had killed a million Gauls and enslaved a million more. And the ancient Roman historians were saying this. And this was a, something to brag about and boast about that for them, how great Roman civilization was. And Holland would read this and, and he would say, this sort of sentiment could not be more foreign to me. He, he was repulsed by it. He was judging the Romans for what they had done. And so he asked himself, where does that disapproval, where does that judgment come from? And the answer he found to his surprise was that it came from Christianity itself. The rabble was right. Christianity does indeed turn the world upside down. In the Roman world, it was based on an ordered hierarchy. The lower orders existed to serve the higher ones. Slaves existed to serve their masters. And in fact, masters were expected to use slaves however they wanted to satisfy their every urge and desire. Women were expected to serve men. 
The lower classes were expected to serve the aristocracy. That's the way the world worked. The weak existed to serve the strong. In other words, social Darwinism predated Darwin by two millennia. Their great heroes were men of strength and power, men who conquered in battle, who, who slayed and subjugated and subdued their enemies, not turned the other cheek toward them. And into this world came Christianity saying that greatness was not seen on a battlefield, but on a cross. And that in Christ, there were neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. That through faith, all of these classes of people were children of God. That's revolutionary rhetoric. And it's something that we take for granted. And it's just one of the countless revolutionary society upending ideas that Christianity brought that we take for granted. That we ought to care for and provide for the weak and sick in our society instead of throwing them in the trash. I think even about the discussions that that we're having about potential healthcare rationing if COVID were to overwhelm our hospitals. And the utter horror people responded with when they found out that that under certain systems, people with intellectual disabilities were going to have that held against them and be discriminated against in receiving treatment. Where did the idea come from that people like that deserve care? That their lives matter? We take it for granted, but it did not come from the Roman world. It came from Christians whose values turned the world upside down, who said that every person is made in God's image and likeness. What about this idea that that victims have rights in the face of their victimizers? Think about the, the Me Too movement. What society other than one saturated by Christianity could have generated that? There would have been no hashtag Me Too movement in Rome. Powerful men like Harvey Weinstein and that world would have seen it as their right to do whatever they wanted with the women who relied upon them for patronage. And whatever the excesses or, or shortcomings of Me Too might be, no one disputes the notion of the necessity of consent in romantic relationships. Why? Where did that idea come from? It came from those Christians whose values turned the world upside down who said that our bodies aren't made to be used and abused by people who are more powerful, but they are temples of the Holy Spirit. Christians who said that the last shall be first and the first shall be last, who said that the cross isn't a symbol of humiliation and domination and degradation, but actually of God's perfect self-sacrificial love. The examples of how Christianity turned the world upside down are endless and we take them for granted because that is the water in which we swim. But thanks be to God for the revolution that was sparked by Jesus and carried forward by Paul and the apostles, which is still unfolding today through the weird message of Jesus, the mysterious power of grace and God's world upending power. So when it comes to that, I say, viva la revolucion. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this world upending message. And God, we thank you that we live in a world where where there are so many aspects of this revolution that we can take for granted. But God, I pray 
that we would not take them for granted, but instead see how your word has come with power to, 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 to set the world right, to transform our hearts, and to begin a revolution through your church where we want to see things look like Jesus and his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.